Take your Bibles and open them up to Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Acts 1, 8. We have been going through the book of Hebrews. We're taking a little break from the book of Hebrews to look at Acts 1, 8. That is our framework for our vision of beyond these walls. Now, as I said last time, I want to be up front as to why I am doing this series. We are in the midst of a revisioning time here at the Bible Chapel to go beyond our walls. Everything we're doing is found in this brochure that you either picked up on your way in or you can pick up on your way out. You can read all about it. We're going to ask you to give. We're going to ask you to serve. We're going to ask you to be a part of uh, praying for the things that we have going on. And we want you to make certain that you know where we're going is based right in Scripture. It's for the local church. And we're going to see today what the local church should look like Five things that every local church should have going on to make it a healthy church, and five things, those same five things, should be going on in our lives if we are truly growing as a follower of Jesus Christ. So let's read together Acts chapter 1, 8, reading from the ESV version. Acts chapter 1, uh, verse 8 is this. If you guys will read it with me on the screen. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And in our vision, we look at that not as um, something that we should do if we get around to it, but the command that Jesus left with us, you shall be my witnesses right where you are in your home, in your community, in your nation. You don't leave out the nation and in your world. Now look at chat, uh, uh, Acts 1.8, and look at that word there, power. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. As we saw last time, that's the Greek word dynamis, and it means ability. It means capability. It means to strengthen and equip for a mission. And amazingly, as we look at Scripture, it's the same word used in Luke 4 for the power that Jesus lived his life in the flesh. Amazingly, as we look at Romans chapter 1, verse 4, as we look at Ephesians 1, 19 and 20, it's the same word that's used for the power that raised Jesus from the dead. Now think about that. The same power that Jesus had during his earthly mission, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead, is the same power that is in us through the Holy Spirit. The power that Jesus had as he walked on this earth, he did signs, he did healings, he did miracles, he did the things to draw people's attention to him so he could show them, they were sign gifts, so he could show them that he was the Son of God, that he was the Messiah. Now those gifts, we believe, don't exist today, but the sign gifts today are who? Us. We're the ones who demonstrate that Jesus Christ is alive. We're the ones that demonstrate his transcending power. We're the ones that demonstrate the power that transforms people. Now, i got to ask you a question. There are a lot of people who, who uh, talk about healing. And I, I believe God can still heal people, right? Just the gift of healing. I don't see anyone with the gift of healing that can lay their hands on and Everybody they lay their hands on becomes healed. I wish, I wish there was someone like that. But we get more excited about a physical healing, and that's cool. 
If I can ask you a question, what's more exciting? A physical healing of someone who is going to be healed and then die again, because we're all going to die, right? Or a spiritual healing for someone who is walking away from God, no thought of God in their mind, on their road to hell, and God interrupts their life and miraculously changes their heart and transforms their heart, and they turn around, and they're on their way to heaven, and they're going to live forever. That's the sign That's the demonstration. That's the power that Jesus gives each one of us, and we are it to show to a watching world what his power looks like. We're not only to do that in our home, but we're to do that in our community, in our nation, and in our world. Now, last time we saw that when Jesus was on earth, he began this work, a key word. He began this work on earth Jesus did his work in bodily form. We see that. We see that recorded in the Gospels. Now from heaven, Jesus continues to do his work, and he does that by his Spirit through us. We're the ones who do the work of Jesus today. Now the ascension took place on Mount Olivet, about three-quarters of a mile outside of uh, Jerusalem. And after Jesus was taken to heaven... His followers, about only 120 of them, I always find that amazing. You don't think that Jesus would have thousands of people at his ascension, right? Only about 120 people. There were the disciples, 11 of them, because Judas was gone. Uh, There were some of the women that followed Jesus. Scripture says there was Mary, his mother, and some others, 120 people. And he ascends into heaven, and they go back into Jerusalem, and they go into, it says, an upstairs room of a house. We don't know where that house was. There are some commentators who think it's the very house that Jesus had the Last Supper in. A lot of those same commentators think that that house was owned by the gospel writer Mark, his mother. She had a large house. In in Acts chapter 12, 12, we learn that a church met in her house. The larger houses churches would meet in uh, back in those days. First church building wasn't built until 240 uh, A.D., So it could have been that house. We don't know, but it's an upstairs room, and it's close to the temple in Jerusalem. Look at what happens in Acts chapter 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, uh, Pentecost is 50 days after the Passover. Penta, the word five, 50 days after the Passover. When that arrived, they were all in one place together, those 120. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like it, it, it wasn't a mighty rushing wind, but it sounded like the, the, the closest thing they could use to describe what this sounded like was a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting and divided tongues as of fire. They weren't fire. It wasn't fire, but it looked like fire. It was the closest thing they could use to describe it. Those tongues of fire or those little columns of fire came down, appeared, and then it rested, divided and rested on each of them, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit, just as Jesus had promised in Acts 1.8, and they began to speak in tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, some people think that's ecstatic utterance, speaking in tongues. It's not what that word means here, because we're going to learn later that that was a language. They were speaking in known languages at that time. Dialect is the word, dialectos in Greek. We get the word dialect from it. Now, why was it important when the Holy Spirit came, these people were able to speak in known languages? Why would that be important? Well, because it was Pentecost, right? 
And at this time, as you know, the history of Israel, uh, different countries had taken over Israel, and, and, and devout Jews were dispersed throughout the world. So during that time, as these Jews were dispersed to the world, they would come to uh, Jerusalem for three main feasts, Pentecost being one of them. And so when you got to Jerusalem that day at Pentecost, you had devout Jews uh, from Crete. You had uh, devout Jews from Asia. Right here, right here you had Cappadocia, uh, Mesopotamia. All these places are mentioned in the verses. They came to Jerusalem right there so they could participate. And when they were there, they heard this, they're in the temple, they heard this, this, what sounded like a wind, and so they go see what it is. The people in the upstairs room, they go to the temple, and while they're there, these people are able to speak in the languages of all these dialects that came throughout the world. We see that in uh, verses 6 and 7, and this at this sound, the multitude came together. It was such a loud sound that everyone came together, and they were bewildered because each was hearing them speak in his own language. How can this happen? They said, we're amazed because are not all these, are not all these speaking Galileans? They're not even from Jerusalem. They're from the northern part of Israel. They're from Galilee, and they're speaking in our own language. How can that be? Pretty amazing, wasn't it? Each of them heard about Jesus Christ in their own language. And Peter, that day, preached a sermon. And after he told them from the Old Testament how Jesus was the Messiah, the one they'd been waiting for, that day 3,000 people trusted in Jesus Christ. Look at verse 41. So those who received his word were baptized, and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. Think about that. And when I read that, I think, how did they get all those baptism videos done in time? <laughs> 3,000. By the way, when you read the book of Acts, baptism's not an option for a believer. It doesn't save you. It doesn't make you more of a Christian. But a person who has had that inward change, desires to demonstrate it in an outward way, and one of those things is by being baptized as a believer. If you've not done that, I don't know what you're waiting for. July chapter, July chapter. <laughs> Sorry, that's not a book of the Bible, is it? July 29th and 30 is our next celebration weekend. Again, baptism doesn't save you. But those who know Christ in the New Testament, you want to be a New Testament believer? In the New Testament, when a person trusted in Christ, they were baptized. By the way, that's why we don't hold to infant baptism. How can an infant trust in Christ? They're not old enough to make that decision yet. But when they can make that decision, and when they do make that decision, baptism is that outward demonstration of an inward grace Walking into the water, identifying with the death of Christ under the water, identifying with the burial of Christ out of the water, identifying with the resurrection of Christ, believers are baptized. So now you have in the church, three, how many? 3,120 new Christians. And we see in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 46, what they did. Here we see the first 
thing the church did. Now, the church and church, we're going to talk more about this next week. Church history changes some things going on, but there are these five things that never change. Five things. Like I said, in 240, started building church buildings instead of meeting in homes. But five things never change. Five things should always characterize every local church, and these five things should be the things that characterize our life. Let's look through them. Acts chapter 2, verse 42 to 47. Let me just read through it. Are these five essentials we call them are word, worship, connect, serve, share. David Donato preached on this just a couple weeks ago. did a fantastic job doing that. Word, worship, connect, serve, share. Word, worship, connect, serve, share. See if you can find those five things as I read through Acts chapter 2, 42 through 46. And they, these 3,120 brand new believers, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayer. And awe came on every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the needs to all as any had need, the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Now let's think through this. Here is, here is, we believe, the five essentials. Every growing believer should, be, have these, <clears throat> should have these five things going on in their life. The first one is the Word. You've got to be in God's Word. You've got to be on, in God's Word on a daily basis. We challenge you. We call it the power of four, being in God's Word at least four times a week in a meaningful way. We have no excuse for that. You take time to eat. You take time to sleep. You take time for everything else that's important in your life you got to be in God's Word four times, at least. God's Word is an essential. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Now, what were the apostles teaching about? They didn't have the New Testament yet, right? So they were teaching through the Old Testament. In fact, if you read Peter's sermon, it is filled with Old Testament passages showing that from the Old Testament, God was preparing His people for the coming of Jesus. They were also telling about Jesus. They had been with Jesus. They were telling the stories that Jesus told. They were telling the parables that Jesus told. They were talking about the miracles that Jesus did. They were were explaining the teaching that Jesus had. Everything they taught became the New Testament. And these new believers were devoted. They devoted themselves to the Word of God because they knew that God's Word changes Lives. John 17, 17 has been our theme verse here at the Bible Chapel since it started back in 1964. Sanctify them in your word or set them apart in your word. Your word is truth. We have nothing to say unless it comes from God's word. You've got to be in God's word. If you're not in God's word, you cannot grow as a follower of Jesus. Period, the end. It just can't grow if you're not eating, if you're not being nourished. By his word. Word, the second one is worship. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to breaking of bread, and to the prayers, and awe came on every soul because many wonders and signs were being done by the apostles. So they devoted 
themselves to the breaking of bread, like we're going to do today. The Lord's Supper, the Lord had left that for them to remember the death that he died for them. They devoted themselves to that. They also devoted themselves to the prayers. Some of them would have been the Jewish prayers that they had already known, and some of them would have been the new prayers that the new believers were praying for protection, protection from persecution, uh, health issues, financial issues, marriage issues, all the stuff just like we have going on today. And they were filled with a sense of awe. Now, let's talk about worship just for a second. When I say the word stewardship, what do you think of? Money, right? And bat on me if you've been here for a long time and you're still thinking about money when you hear the word stewardship. Stewardship does not mean just money. Stewardship means to manage everything that God has given you. That's time and gifts and money. What do you think about when I say the word worship, right? Well, a lot of times, just singing in the service or coming to a worship service. We've got to get that word out of our mind. Worship is not something you do. A worshiper is who you are. When you look at the word worship, it comes up 172 times in the Old Testament. 50 times it's translated with the Hebrew word yabad, and that means to serve. 45 times it's translated with the word shaha, and that means to bow down. Bow down and serve. Worship is living a life of bowing down in service to God. Worship is leading an entire life of reverence and service to God. When you come to the New Testament, the main word that's used for worship, worship's found 78, eight times, the main word that's used for it means to express by attitude and sometimes by our position, our bodily position, our allegiance to God, to bow down. Other words mean to serve. You see, worship is an all-life, all-in response to God. You don't just worship for 75 minutes on a Sunday morning. Worship is a profound respect we have for God during all of our life, every breath we take. It's the awe we have for God, whether I'm singing songs with believers whether I'm listening to his word, whether I'm reading his word on my own, whether I'm watching television, I have to be a worshiper when I'm watching television, when I'm surfing the internet, listening to the radio, sitting in a classroom, posting an Instagram, putting something on Facebook, purchasing an item, texting a friend, doing business, doing relationships, doing parenting, doing yard work. I'm a worshiper because worshiper is living an entire Life. There's nothing in our soul where you can turn on, oh, now it's time to worship, coming to raise my hands. Can't turn that button on or off. I'm a worshiper every day, every minute of my life. So let's think of worship like this. There's, there, there's, there's, there's more in-depth and better definitions, but just for today. Worship is Jesus, all life, all in. Does that describe you? If you, someone looked at your checkbook, your online stuff, no one here does that. But if someone did, would they say, now there is a worshiper. I see how they spend their money. There's a follower of Jesus. Someone checked through your Facebook or your Instagram. Would someone say, you know, I don't know a lot about this person, but I tell you this, they're a follower of Jesus. When someone hears your language, stories you tell. And I don't know a lot about that person, but I know this. They're a follower of Jesus. You see, a worship means that we are 
about Jesus, all life, all in. Word, worship, connect. Look at the next one. So they devoted themselves to apostles' teaching, to the fellowship. That word means koinonia. It's a rich Greek word. It's, it means a close association, connection with other people. They, they wouldn't do this Christian life alone. They devoted themselves to fellowship. And then look at uh, uh, verse 46. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. It's a private home. They received food with glad and generous hearts. So they continually met together, breaking bread together. That word describes, those words describe having a meal together. Possibly there was the Lord's Supper involved in that meal. We're not for sure. But it's kind of like potluck. People would bring, people would meet at the larger homes. They wanted to be together. There was an aspect of connection. Christians don't live their lives alone. Are you connected with other believers? Man, the most dangerous place you can be is by yourself. Word, worship, connect, serve. Look at verses 44 and 45. All who believed together had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Now, I've got to stop here just a second. This is, not, this is not communism. This is not community ownership. First, it says they had all things in common. That does not mean they sold everything and put all their possessions together. That just means the believers understood that everything they had was a gift from God. And everything they had should be used for God and His people, not just for themselves. That's an amazing thought, isn't it? They had all things in common. Secondly, they didn't sell everything and put their money in a big pile. That's not what happened here. As needs arose, as situations happened, as they saw there was a need for money to be spent or something to purchase or to help out someone or to give food to the poor, when they saw a need, they would go sell their property, a piece of property, or they would sell their goods if they were a business person, and they would bring that money in to meet a specific need. Again, it wasn't just putting everything in a pile and living together. They had their jobs. They were doing their thing. They had to work. And they were coming together to worship because they realized that it was all God's. He was a giver of all good things. And they were to use those things for him. So word, worship, connect, serve. And what's the last one? Share. Acts 2.46, and day by day, they were attending the temple together. Now, two interesting things are happening there. Why would, these are Christians, but they keep going back to the temple. Why would they do that? Well, first, in, in uh, Judaism at that time, there was room for many sects. And as long as the people came and, and held to one God, then the Christians were able to worship in the temple area. So they would go back, and, they, and, and the early Christians, the Jewish Christians, they just, saw, they just saw Jesus as the Messiah, as the fulfillment of the Old Testament. This was, this was a completion of Judaism. So they had no problem going back to the temple. And that's where they would, they would worship day by day. But, but there's another reason they went back to the temple. Why would they go to the temple? Because that's where all the people were. They were sharing the message of Christ. They were talking to others. They weren't hiding away in some corner. They were going to where the people were. 
or the people in your life. And they were sharing the message of Christ. It's no coincidence that they were day by day going to the temple together. And then uh, look at verse 47, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day, those who were being saved. They're sharing the message of Jesus Christ. That's what Christians do. We tell others about Jesus. This is so important to us. This is so exciting to us. This is about eternal stuff that we want to make sure everyone in our network of friends, where the people are in our life, we want to make sure they know where we stand in relation to Jesus, and we want to be able to clearly explain to them, don't we, what it means to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. So they'd go to the temple, and they'd share where the people are, and then they would come back together, and they would share those stories and that excitement, and they would get the, the, turbo, the spiritual turbo boost of meeting together like we do on Saturdays and Sundays, and then going out and doing the same thing again. Meeting in these large homes so they could get to know one another and connect with one another and serve each other, find out what the real needs were, pray for each other, And that's really those five things, word, worship, connect, serve, share, every healthy church, every growing believer, and that's the heart behind our multi-site efforts. We are one church that meets in several locations. Right now, meeting in Robinson, in Wilkinsburg, in Washington, here in the South Hills, And our prayer is, after today, the Mon Valley. Now, why do we do multi-sites? We do multi-sites because our mission, well, first of all, Acts 1-8, right? It doesn't say, you just keep all your money right here. You just stay right here in your home. You just don't risk anything. You just keep it right here. It says, get out. Go do something in your community and in your nation and in your world. That's our call. We also do multi-sites because our mission is we exist to to develop followers of Jesus Christ in the South Hills of Pittsburgh, in the greater Pittsburgh area, and throughout the world. How better can we develop followers of Jesus Christ than having churches all around the greater Pittsburgh area? We believe that those are the er people from Robinson are not going to drive to Washington, and people in Washington are not going to drive to Wilkinsburg to church, and people in Wilkinsburg are not going to come to the South Hills. So we go to them, right? The Bible Chapel meeting in different locations. And in those smaller churches, smaller campuses, and here, as we grow larger, we've got to get smaller in the South Hills campus. We've got to make certain that we are taking care of each other, that we're challenging each other to be in the Word, in worship, connected with each other, serving and sharing. Now, why do we do multi-sites instead of church plant? Here's the reason. It's all about numbers. 75% of church plants fail. 75-plus of multi-sites succeed. We're on, we want to be on the 75% of success 
in that area. And there are a lot of reasons for that. I won't go into them. I did them, all those meetings I did. I went into a lot of the reasons. We place a multi-site in particular areas for one of three reasons. One, there's room for a church like ours in that area. Now, I want to be sure we do not have any corner on the market. And there are tremendous Bible churches in Pittsburgh. We're not saying that. But if there's room for one in an area, then we'll consider that area. Secondly, we consider an area where there's a mission that we want to be a part of or we want to start a mission. And thirdly, we start one where we have a, we have a lot of people coming to that campus from a particular area. For us here at the Southfields, that's the, the Mon Valley. Now, we have what we call a hub and spoke model, a hub and spoke model. So we have the South Hills right here. We have the Robinson campus somewhere up in here. We have the Washington campus around in here. We have the Wilkinsburg campus. Again, these aren't, if you're an engineer, this is not to scale, all right? So we're good. And then the Mon Valley, we hope, we pray after today, we'll have right there. Now, our hub and spoke model goes like this. Once a church is healthy, once one of these campuses are healthy, the Bible chapel at one of these locations, once the Robinson uh, church, we believe as elders it's a healthy church, then from Robinson, from Robinson, right, we're going to go out to, using those same, that same three criteria, maybe it's McKee's Rocks, maybe it's out toward the airport, Beaver, Beaver Falls, maybe out that way, and have another church launched from the Robinson campus. So now, from Robinson, 20 years from now, our prayer is that every campus would have these launches from every one of their campuses. So we're not looking to have another campus the size of the South Hills. The only reason the South Hills campus is this size is because we've been around a long time. That's not our purpose. We know that in Robinson, if if you're not there, Tom Rojan knows you're not there. And in Washington, if you're not there, Zeb knows you're not there. And if you're not there a few Sundays, he's going to be calling you and saying, hey, what's going on? Are you okay? Are you sick? How can we help you out? Same thing with Dave and Wilkinsburg. Now, it's a little more challenging here. We have to do that through our life groups in the South Hills campus. But that's that's one of the reasons we do that. Now, if you're a business person, you know that one of your jobs is to develop the next layer of leadership, right? Because you know if you don't, when you're gone... Your business goes down with you. Now, who wants their business buried with them? Well, at the Bible Chapel, we have found a, the, that leadership development is a the, the multi-sites is a tremendous pipeline of leadership development. Our, all of our pastors at the multi-sites preach once at least once a month. And I want to encourage you on the Sundays they preach. We'll give you a schedule to go out to those campuses. They would love to have you out there supporting them. I want, to, I want you to, to go out and check that out. Uh, between now and the end of the year, they'll be doing live nine times. So go check out what they're doing. We've also said, well, you know, if we do this, it just stretches us thin. Man, we don't have enough volunteers and money. What are we going to do with the money? Well, I won't take the time, but look in your bulletin, and you can see that all of our campuses, we have all of our campuses listed with the giving, the targeted and the giving, and they're all doing well. The South Hills campus is about two weeks behind, so if you're in the South Hills campus, we got to step it up, right? But all together, doing really well in, the, uh, in, the, in, the, in, in all our campuses. So I want to thank all of you in Robinson and all of you in Wilkesburg and all of you in Washington for doing what you're doing in the giving area. And South Hills, I want to thank you as well 
and pick up these next two weeks, all right? Leadership development. I want to I go over this real quick. Got to go over this real quick. How are we going to have enough volunteers to do all this? It just spreads us too thin. Well, when we started the Robinson Church, I want to I read real quick a list of the people who have come through the Robinson Church and what they're doing today. Real quick. Scott Arvey was our first campus pastor in Robinson. Now he's our associate pastor. Dave Wilkin, Dave uh, uh, DiDonato uh, was a CCO guy out in Robinson area. Now he's our Wilkinsburg campus pastor. Bob D, uh, McDema started in Robinson. Now he's our tech director in Washington. Andrew Johnson, creative arts. Maria Stockman uh, started in Robinson. Uh, now she works with me, executive administration and communication specialist. Ryan Middleton started in Robinson, director of outreach here. Zach Amy started in Robinson, worship director at TBC uh, in Washington now. Scott McHarrison, same thing. Alan Booth, a worship leader at a Robinson campus, started out in Robinson. And here's what, here's what we've done for the kingdom at large. Justin Bowers was in uh, uh, Robinson, and now he's a pastor of New Community Church in, Buc- um, in, in West Virginia. Tim Fell, director of worship at Washington Alliance Church. Michael McCormick, who was our campus pastor in Robinson for a while, now he's a pastor at Calvary Christian. Rick Buter is a director of worship at Next Level Church in Florida. Scott Briding uh, started in the Robinson campus. Now they're, he and his wife are missionaries to Asia, sent out from the Bible Chapel in Robinson. So, so, so key leadership is happening not just for us, but for the kingdom. I think that's pretty cool, don't you? All two of our... Okay, I, I ask for that. I'm sorry. It's got to be spontaneous if it really counts. Two of our elders, two of our elders, uh, Jim Bruni came from the Washington campus. Now he's an elder here. And Ed Reed came through the Washington campus, and now he's an elder here. Dave DiDonato told me that uh, in, the, in the Wilkinsburg Community, uh, in the Wilkinsburg Community Development Corporation, when you try to start a ministry or something in Wilkinsburg, they now tell the people to go talk to Dave DiDonato at the Wilkinsburg Church because of everything going on through the Bible Chapel in Wilkinsburg. Here, here's an, an email that Dave got. They said, talk to the Bible Chapel on Ross Avenue. They do a ton of community engagement work, don- donation drives, diaper giveaways, Sunday breakfast, other programs. They're awesome. Now, I don't say that to brag on our campuses, but I do because God's doing that, right? He's working through it, and he is an awesome God, and we get to be his representatives, his signs and wonders here in this earth. Our Washington campus is doing a fantastic job. You got, uh, the Bible Chapel in, uh, in, in Wilkinsburg, and that's why we want to start a preschool in Wilkinsburg, because in Wilkinsburg, it's the highest number of dropouts, highest number of dropouts, high school dropouts in Wilkinsburg throughout all the greater Pittsburgh. In fact, they just closed down the Wilkinsburg uh, High School, and now all the Wilkinsburg kids are, are in uh, the Pittsburgh uh, school system. Our Washington campus, led by Zeb Thomas, is right in the middle. Of, uh, of some challenges. Across the street from the prison, two blocks down from the city mission, three or four blocks from the courthouse. And you guys know the heroin situation that's going on in the Pittsburgh area, up 45% uh, over the past year. Washington County, Westmoreland County is getting hit hard. 
Uh, we have a guy who works here at the uh, Bible Chapel. He's a first responder for a, a very small city uh, just a few minutes from here. And in that city, five to seven times a month, they use Narcan to counter the overdoses. I talked to another person. They're now selling Narcan in EpiPen form over the counter because kids and young adults are having drug parties and they take enough drugs to overdose and they keep that one person there, now not as a designated driver, right, but as a designated EpiPen, Narcan person to bring them back if they go. We got an issue. And so we're going to do something about that. We have already started a a recovery uh, ministry here at the Bible Chapel. Uh, Jeff uh, Sippos heads that program up, and our desire is, if you you can read all about it, our desire is to start a recovery program, not just for uh, uh, people addicted uh, to drugs, but also for parents. We know that some of you have lost the kids to, to overdoses. We know that some of you are going through some challenging times. And we want to start a ministry right there from the Washington campus. I want Jeff is at Washington right there. There's Jeff uh, Sippos. He's doing a fantastic job. In fact, let Jeff know how much you appreciate all that he's doing. And we've got all kinds of things to do. But you've got to read about it. You've got to be involved in it. So in 1961, John F. Kennedy said, Our nation is out of shape. It is flabby. And we're going to do something about it. And so he started a program, the Presidential Council on Physical Fitness. Remember that? Started in 1961. And John F. Kennedy developed a song, and he put it on a 45. Remember those things? And he sent it to every high school, every high school in the United States. And it was to get people back in shape. We're going to play just a few seconds of this song, and uh, some of you are going to remember it. Uh, it's actually uh, the people on the screen are from Evan, the University of Evansville, and the guy in the middle is the president. But you'll also remember the song from the iPhone 5 commercial. See if some of you remember the song. You ready? Touchdown every morning. Now and then Give that chicken fat back to the chicken And don't be chicken again No, don't be chicken again Okay, that's good. That's good. Anyone remember that? How, okay, raise your hand if you did that. You remember the song? The guy who headed that up uh, the, the guy who headed up the President Council on Physical Fitness was a guy named Bud Wilkinson who coached the Oklahoma Sooners from 1947 to 1963. Uh, one of the reasons I, I love the Sooners is the, the impact they had on the nation. Um, <laughs> and that song was called Go, You Chicken Fat, Go. And Wilkinson had 11 floor exercises with that song. Here's what Bud Wilkinson said. Here's how he, he was a football coach. Here's how he defined football. Football is 22 boys on the field badly in badly need of, exercise, of, of rest. Football is 22 boys on the field badly in need of rest. And 40,000 people in the stands badly in need of exercise. 
could have described the church, couldn't have he? You sitting in the stands or are you on the field? You just watching people play? Or are you in the game? Jesus Christ is calling you to get in the game. To use your gift that he has given you. To use the stuff that he's given you. To make an impact in your generation in these fleeting years we have on this earth. But you got to get on the field. Christianity is not a spectator sport. Father, as we get ready to take communion, we are going to hold in our hand the bread and the cup to remind us of one who is not a spectator, but hung on the cross for us. And our question during this time is, how will we respond to you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Lou Motter, elder, is going to lead us in communion. If you're a believer here today, feel free to take the bread and the cup and ask that question. With all that Jesus has done for you, how are you going to respond?